0: our DT systems the wrap 1400 or 1400 if you like doing it that way but it's the wrap 1400 it's a collar that is super reliable ready to rock and it's super handy because you can hold it in your hand while you're shooting your shotgun during duck season so it's a cool unit for you and your dog come hunting season so that you've got control over any situation anything the dog throws at you during the hunt is right there easy and accessible bingo bango bongo if you don't want that one check out the H h 1820 It's the DT Systems, and it's dog-tested, dog-tough. Gunner kennels, baby. Hashtag man's best kennel. Well, it's also now hashtag man's best food crate. It's freaking raccoon-proof. You can't get into this thing. Your dog can't bust into the lid and eat all the food. Trust me, I know Memphis has done it in the past. She looks like a blown-up pumpkin. Boom. Boom. But not anymore we've got the gunner kennel food crate it's easy to pack easy to store keeps food dry which foods an investment man that purina baby it ain't cheap anymore so keep it dry good all that stuff easy to pack easy to store the gunner kennel food crate slide into dms if you'd like to learn more it's force fetch baby it's the number one question we get asked you don't know how to fix it let me help you let me get you to your goals we built a course bunch of videos. I think there's 13 or 14 videos start to finish on how you and your dog can get through the force fetch process successfully. The link's in the description. Be sure to check it out and let me help you and your dog. Welcome to another episode of Lone Ducks, Gundog Chronicles. I'm fired up here. I've got my buddy Blaine Tarnecki from Hudson River Retrievers and my brother Kevin on the line, and we are excited to be here. I'm down in Lula, Georgia, training with Blaine for the last few days. He's preparing for the 2019 HRC Spring Grand, Uh, so we're excited to talk about that with him, hear about his prep. The dogs that are running and we're gonna do a little shot for shot with you. Some questions for Blaine, some questions for me. Um Kev, how you doing, big guy? How's New York?
1: Good man. Life's good. Got myself a little uh bullet bourbon here, feeling good. Uh did some good training with Covey today, feeling really uh good about it. We did a little heel work, which is coming along nicely, did a little whoa action. I think she's gonna be a nice little dog. And uh, I'm looking forward to when you come back up north to do a little, um, you know, live flying pigeon work and, and really hone in on her pointing, setting, whatever. Uh, but I'm excited, man. Life's good.
0: good. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. Um, all right, Blaine, we're going to get into it, man. Let's just dive right in. If you could do me a favor, tell everybody a little bit about yourself and how you got started in training.
2: Well, it was pretty uh, pretty interesting. We had a public uh, watershed lake that a few of us hunted uh, years ago, and I hunted with a Boykin back then, and uh, over the course of a two- or three-year period, we would come back to the boat ramp after a hunt, and I saw you know, another boat with a Boykin in front of it, and then the next weekend, I'd see a different boat with a Boykin in front of it and realize there was... Three of us uh, that lived within 20 20 miles of each other that all had Boykins, and we decided when it was off, uh, when it was wasn't duck season, we'd get together on Saturdays and Sundays and train dogs, and we all trained to a, a pretty high standard with our dogs using, you know, Evan Graham Smartworks back then, and you know did what we did for for purely for hunting purposes. We didn't know anything about hunt tests or field trials and we would get together on the weekends, and we, we thought the way our boykins ran was normal um, and that all boykins were like that. And then I met a, I met a hunt test pro and started hanging out with him a little bit, and he was thoroughly impressed with our boykins. He'd never seen any like that, and one thing led to another. He talked me into going to a hunt test one weekend, and uh, the rest is pretty much history. I got kind of... Pulled into that game, and and still doing it today, and love every weekend.
0: So, which was, who was the first Boykin you had?
2: So, I had one, I had a really good one named Cooper, really good dog. He was a big dog, a larger Boykin, probably 50 pounds. Um, big, muscular, fast, strong dog, um, just, he didn't know he was a Boykin. I thought it was a lab, ran like a lab.
0: A really talented young dog really good dog so that's the dog that you're talking about that was on the boat ramp that got Mm -hmm.
2: yes sir he was he picked up a bunch of teal on on the watershed lake and a bunch of wood ducks a few mallards here and there if you killed 20 mallards in georgia one season that was pretty good
0: but he picked up a boatload of teal and wood ducks very cool what year was that good question uh Mid nineties. Oh, that's right. You're way older than Kevin and I. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Blaine, anybody ever tell you that you're lost having a South Carolina dog up in or you know down in Georgia? There,
2: uh, they're taking over Georgia. Oh um, yeah. Oh you yeah. Know, you see, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee. Uh, some of the better Boykins. Uh, one of the better Boykin breeders uh, in the country is from the Nashville area. Um, has probably bred some of the better dogs in the country has probably the one of the best females that ever
0: test was the
2: youngest female hrch uh, female uh, boykin was the first uh, boykin to get a master hunter retriever title um, boykins weren't allowed to run akc hunt tests until gosh, probably the last 15 20 years is when they started on that and cinnamon uh, was the name of that dog uh, owned by kim Smith they called it the bonbon bon dog she was pretty fat and looked like she just sat on the couch and ate bonbons <laughs> all the time. Um, so they called her the bonbon bon dog. But she she uh, actually was on a couple of Drake Waterfowl shows. and
1: No way. Um, that's cool.
2: 14-month-old hunt retriever champion, uh, 20-month-old master hunter retriever. She was a, a machine. Loved water, loved ducks. Great dog. Um, but she produced some really, really fine boys. A lot of boys in my kennel now are, are, are out of cinnamon or cinnamon daughters. My, my dog, troubles out of cinnamon. Buck is out of cinnamon, um, one of the more talented Boykins in the
0: world right now.
2: So she produces really fine
0: dogs out of West Tennessee. Uh, so let me slow down real quick. For anybody who's listening to this that is unfamiliar with a Boykin Spaniel, can you maybe describe the look and the personality of a Boykin? Sometimes the personality we talked about yesterday and today was a mini
2: Chessie. Um, and a lot of, a lot of the things they do, um, cool little dog. I think it's a true versatile breed. I think the term versatile breed is used a little too loosely with some dogs, um, that really aren't versatile. Um, they may do one thing pretty well and then they do other things a little bit below average, but I think a Boykin is a, a truly a versatile dog. Most of them, uh, just have a great desire for water for ducks, I love to retrieve. They're naturally good quartering dogs, upland dogs, great flushing dogs. um A lot of people up in the northeast, especially that fall turkey season, use Boykins uh, as turkey dogs to break up big flocks of turkey and and get them spread out, and then sit by their owner as the hunter calls back a uh, you know the the gobblers. um They were, you know, originally started in South Carolina, like everybody knows, and. Uh, an older gentleman uh, got started with the breed. I can't remember the year, but it's a, a fairly young breed. that he wanted a small, compact dog that could go in a small canoe and paddle through the swamps of South Carolina and pick up wood ducks for him. Um, and so typically the average size of a male is going to be between 35 and, and 45 pounds. Um, your females will be slightly smaller. Their coats vary. Gosh, you see... You know, in my kennel, you'll see some really tight curls. You'll see super straight, longer hair, um, wavy hair, uh, just all different types of coats. They're all brown. Um, no other really distinguished markings on them. They, we dock the tails at, at two days old. They look like a, you know, a larger English cocker with, you know, just a, some of them have a real, a real thick coat, um, almost like a, a water spaniel or chassis um seem to do a little bit better in the cold weather but a great little versatile dog
1: blaine you think they that's do okay in cold weather up north i'm talking like I cold think, cold
2: yeah yeah i mean some do and you know i've seen labs i've seen some labs that don't do real well in super cold water and i've seen boykins that don't um yeah that's i've fair. owned that's a good point i've owned two that are my best hunting dog um passed away a year and a half ago to cancer he didn't care how cold it was. Uh, we hunted a lot in northern Arkansas and, you know, sub-freezing weather for weeks at a time and, and super windy weather and breaking ice and um, doing all that kind of fun stuff and, and big open rice fields with white caps on them, you know, certain days. And, you know, he didn't struggle with that. Uh, and it just it just can depend on the dog individually. Um, ideally, they're more suited, I think, for smaller water, and swamp hunting and and Works like that but i've got a i've got a good client up in maryland that hunts chesapeake bay with Um, really hunts hard 50 days a year on chesapeake bay and he's a machine Um, so they can do it Uh, it's really how you raise them and and train them
0: blaine talk to me about drake a little bit so as you know and as our listeners know lone duck started with the idea of the unspoken bond and the relationship we have with our dogs and the memories we make. And I feel like Drake was that once-in-a-lifetime, if you will, dog, that dog that really went from being an amateur trainer and took you to the next level. Will you tell his story a little bit, please? Yeah, sure. He was uh, – the, the funny thing about Drake, and
2: everybody in the Boise community knows, like, he was an Open National Champion, a very young hrch dog. Um, just a, a phenomenal dog could mark. He could, you know, if the AKC would allow it, he could have run a queue and finished a queue. Um, he could mark big marks and swim big swims and, and do all that work. Uh, best thing about him was his hunting ability. He was just a good hunting dog. Uh, we hunt a lot of real tight, thick, swampy areas in, in the south. And, um, you know, wood duck flight early in the morning that would be, you know, barely light enough to see. And the dog just knew where ducks were. You didn't have to see them. You didn't have to watch them hit the water. Uh, you could shoot three, four, five ducks in a volley. You never had to handle the dog. You just got the duck out of his mouth and set him on the next. He knew how to find ducks. You know, there, there are certain things that are only learned through experience. But he uh, he hunted a lot. And, and through that, he just knew how to find ducks. So you didn't have to blow a bunch of whistles. You didn't have to holler you. Throw rocks in the water. Uh, he was gonna go get your birds, and it didn't really matter what was in the way. Um, we had a, a story one time we were we were hunting a good little mallard hole, and killed a drake mallard, and it dove and got underneath the bank, and there was a, a cutout that was from the pond that went up underneath the the ground um, through a big, I guess through the root system of a, of a tree, and that duck dove and went down underneath there. Well that's the good thing about the small boy because they can get in tight little spots and he smelled where the, where the duck had gone, and he went under the water and I could hear him. I was worried he was going to die up under there, but I could hear him splashing where I guess the water level was underneath the ground and finally caught that duck and found that duck underneath, you know, that embankment and brought it back out. I mean, he was underwater for, I don't know how long uh, and just dug that duck out. And so there's so many times that he would get, you didn't lose a duck if he was hunting with him. you didn't lose a duck they have an incredible um nose and so you know trailing a duck on the water through grass you know diving under and finding one he was he was good at everything he did um exceptional mark he would he loved the dove field he was sitting in the middle of the dove field on a hay bale and pick up dust for everybody and, and opening weekend of georgia season when it might be 95 degrees um, and that's, you know, one thing about the boykin breed is they're so, they're, they're very heat tolerant um, and they do well in the heat. They don't, you know, they don't get as hot as quick as a lab. And, you know, that's, you know, part of the allure form was for the, the Southern dove hunters and dove hunters a big deal down here. And a lot of guys, especially in South Carolina belong to these real, you know, these real nice uh, big time dove clubs. And they want a boykin because they know they're going to be able to last at the heat, and
0: get the job done. That's cool. So after you, what year did you win the open with Drake? That was, uh, that was 2015. Was that the time that you started taking dogs in for training? Did you do it before?
2: No, we, we did it before and we were doing really well with them. Um, we were, we just had a knack for making hunt and retriever champions. at Boykins, Um, where, really not many people were there were a few amateurs that had you know one or two dogs that were doing well with them uh, no other pros in the southeast really wanted to to mess with them um just you know for one reason or another they thought they were too difficult to train or weren't built for that work and you know the ones that were doing it weren't willing to adapt their styles at all to you know to deal with the boykin's some of their uh their little issues and, and oddities and, and you know weren't really making good dogs out of them when we started doing it and the reason i started taking dogs was mainly because i saw these voices at hunt tests when i started running them and they were terrible um that you know so many of them just didn't have good water attitudes they didn't like ducks um and just saw a lot of poorly trained dogs that you know i saw the ability of these dogs and um the potential they had and you know, one thing led to another, people would see my dogs and say, Hey, would you take my dog? So I was teaching, um, in, in white County down the road about 20 minutes away and, um, started taking dogs. Cause I had time after school and, and during the summers to, to work dogs. and I'd have eight or 10 dogs at the time. Um, and then worked out a deal with the school somehow where I could work part time. And I worked till 12 o'clock every day. And then I'd come home and I'd bust it till dark uh, with the dogs and then go run tests on the weekends. And, um, you keep getting passes and finished on Boykins and people, you know, people notice that. And, you know, our business grew to probably what we thought it would be in 15 years in about five years. Um, and today, you know, it's, I feel like we're thriving and,
0: and Boykins is what comes. That's cool. Um, when I got down to South Carolina three years ago, I feel like then it was starting to emerge. You were really hitting a groove with your business and people were realizing what a Boykin can do. But when I, I feel like there was this sentiment that Boykins weren't maturing until four years old and they were still running junior level, started level until then. And then they were starting to mature and people would push them a little bit further as they aged. And you kind of, showed people that you could do it different, you could do it quicker, you could you could put them on a I wouldn't maybe say a faster pace, but you were able to accomplish more at a younger age through your teaching methods than most people were or most people thought they could get a boy can could do could do it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think people had
2: low expectations of their own dogs.
0: That's kind of what I I'm trying to get at. of the over they weren't expecting them to do great things. They just were having fun, and if the dog picked up the bird, they were great. And then you came to town and were just crushing, and all these dogs were happy and successful and working hard. And you, you, I feel like you single-handedly upped the expectations for the breed. Blaine, we I always just yeah. Sorry, man. What
1: do you think you did differently than people with Boykins before? Right, think, like, like I people, feel like if, if, and I, I guess I don't know. Pardon my ignorance, but like, it sounds like you just absolutely turned it on its head. Like, what were you doing different than other trainers before that, like, maybe just completely set you apart?
0: I
2: think the few pros that were training Boykins um, were training them like a spaniel rather than a retriever, and we didn't train them like a spaniel. That may or may not make sense, but um, people people thought that they couldn't handle the pressure. They couldn't work through it. Um, they couldn't do that kind of work, so they dumbed down um, their training. And if they were going to run a starter test, their training would look like a starter test. If they were going to run a senior test, their training looked look like a senior test. Uh, rather than upping the ante every day with those dogs and expecting them uh, to do great things um, and so we always had higher expectations for our dogs and um, every dog that came in we felt like well this is going to be a great dog <laughs> bill hillman says it a lot he says every dog i touch i i think this is going to be a great dog and i know it's going to be a great dog and i have that attitude every day at work uh, with my dogs even even the ones that are struggling um, we're going to work through it um be patient patience is a key um i think with all dog training not just a, a boy and spaniel but you know, realizing they all learn different and not getting into a a one cookie cutter way of training a dog. Um, My my field in in education was special education. Well, you dealt with a a, a group of kids that all learned differently, that all had, you know, different disabilities and and different ways of responding to different methods of teaching and dogs are the same way. And so in, in the special ed field, Every student has a, what's called an IEP, an individualized education program. And you sit down with a group of counselors, with doctors, with the parents, and you, you know, you determine what is the best method to teach this child, what are the goals for this kid, and how are we going to reach those goals? Well, I do that with every single dog that comes into the kennel. We look at that dog and how it learns through the puppy, puppy stages, and what, sets it off where its struggles are and i come up with a plan of how i'm going to attack that dog's issues and rather than avoiding the issues we go right at them and, and try to work through it and so you just you know with a Boykin, we just decided we're gonna we're gonna train him like a dog not like a spaniel um and train them with the same you know similar methods that you train any any lab or any other you know golden or, or working breed um, now, I have some I have some different things that I do with a Boykin and, you know, I may show a lab three times what I expect of them and then I'm going to hold them accountable for, you know, a Boykin, I may show them 25 times and then hold them accountable. for uh, I think there and this is where it goes back to the Chessie comment. I think a Boykin needs to be totally clear on what you're asking them to do before you put pressure on uh, on that particular thing. Um, And so as long as they understand what you're asking them to do, and I'm going to be 100% sure that dog knows what I want it to do before I put pressure on them to do that thing. Um, And so, you know, we just kind of, we attacked it and and went for it. And, um, you know, I don't want to say we made them do it because they do it out of the love for doing it. Um, But we weren't going to, you know, we weren't going to allow for mediocre work um, and, and had higher expectations for them
0: one of the things that i find helps um get you to that end goal is how you start your puppies and how you how you raise them from eight weeks uh, you know, to six months that that zero to six month range you have a a diff not different but i don't know, to explain it to people what what are you doing with your puppies from from young to six months before formal stuff starts
2: well we got we've got magic voodoo power <laughs> <Lord>. <laughs> we want and and you know maybe we do but we want to we want a little puppy at four five six months old we take them at eight weeks um a lot of trainers that they don't want to mess with a dog till they've got their adult teeth in and they can start power conditioning and force fetch work and stuff like that. I, I like to get them at, at, at 10, 12, 14 weeks old. Um, we want to put them in so many different scenarios early on, uh, but put them in scenarios where they're going to be successful. You know, get them in the water a lot, get them on birds a lot, get them looking out for gunners in the field early on in life. Um, build their desire to to run and chase something. Um, you know, where that's the most important thing in their life, but but you know, balance it out with good fundamentals and, and obedience early on. You know, we do with our puppies, we actually do a lot of clicker training. Um, we do a lot of treat training. Uh, we do a lot of I think different methods for for studying dogs. And I know we're gonna do a lot of that talk, you know, later on when we we talked about some different methods, but um you know i think we go about it a little bit different i don't think i think a lot of pros are um against the clicker training uh with their dogs because i think it's you know more suited for the pet you know market or the obedience you know training only market but you know it's it's a reward-based system that shows the dog that if you comply and do this you get something back and you know we all work for something in return um, we all want something back and, and i don't see why we would you know, give the dog uh, a reward for doing well and trying hard. So we try to get those puppies uh, working and learning early. Um, And you can, you know, you can put a lot of, a lot more pressure on a puppy early on um, without that dog knowing you're putting pressure on. And that's one of our tricks is just, is teaching things early on without the dog really know it's learning and it's, it's having fun. Uh, It's maintaining a good attitude. Um, but also, you know, maintaining, you know, good behavior. Um, And, you know, you you don't have a good dog in the finished level unless you have a good dog at the start level that understands what's sitting, understands, you know, its job is to go get that and come back. Um, And so we try to build that foundation early. Um, We don't rush them through the process, but if we can get a puppy early, we find that we can, you know, we can really start force fetch and collar conditioning at six and seven months old with some of these dogs and 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 get them rolling in the process and you know some trainers don't like to throw marks during four steps we throw marks every day with with the young dogs um every day they're going to see marks and whether they bring them all the way back to hand or not is not a big deal as long as they're looking out watching a bird fly and going and get it that's what we care about and you know get them as crazy about retrieving as possible early on and uh, that's that's helped us a lot with, you know, dogs that really know how to mark well, you know, not having a two-month span when they're in, you know, force fetch where they're not seeing any marks, not having any fun. Um, if the only time the dog's coming out of the kennel is for you to pinch its ear or do collar fetch or, or do walking fetch or tee work, then that dog's not going to be a happy dog. Um, it needs to get out and play. It needs to get out and, and swim and run and, and be a dog. But it needs to go out and pick up birds and see marks fall and hear gunshots and do all the fun stuff, you
0: know, during that time. couldn't agree more. Um, before we get into more training tips and methods and concepts, I want to talk about what you're preparing for this week. This is a major accomplishment to get to this point. Would you talk to us about HRC and the Grand? Yeah, the Grand is the the pinnacle of of the
2: HRC Hunt Test Program. Um, It's a, I think it's a love and hate relationship that a lot of people have with the Grand. Um, We love HRC. HRC was. You know the the big organization that allowed for boykins to show their potential, along with the you know with the big dogs, and um, have always been welcomed into to their events and, and treated well. Uh, but the grands a whole different animal itself. It's a fun it's a fun experience, but it's a, it can be a demoralizing experience. Um, it's it's tough. It takes a it takes a good animal, regardless of the breed. Uh, to get one of those green ribbons and and, you know a boykin there's only been uh, a handful of of boykins ever to 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 get to the fifth series uh and 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 get to that moment and get to that time and it's it's a tough deal um they're not they're not looking for your everyday um average finish dog it takes a it takes a very strong marking dog it takes a very well-behaved dog uh, it takes a, a, a very a sound uh, dog that, you know, stops every time you blow the whistle and takes your cast. Um, they're not looking for scallops. They're not looking for cast refuses, They're not looking for big hunts on a mark. Um, they're looking for a, a, a fine dog. And it's a heck of an accomplishment to get a grand pass uh, on any of the dogs. Uh, but a Boykin uh, is, you know, it's tough. They're, you know, their size limits them at the grand. Um, the grand is not set up. Uh, so much for a boykin you know they they're putting you in in tough hunting situations where there's a lot of cover um, I've run boykins in, in in grand blinds where I couldn't see my dog for part of the part of the way uh, where they couldn't see the whole mark just because of their size um, we might be down in a little depression in a field and and you know that's where I, probably where I would have set up to hunt to, to be hidden and so the dogs need to be able to do it but to, you know for them to see over, you know, forty or fifty full-body goose decoys in front of the line, and and see marks. You know, come out from really inconspicuous places. At the grand, you don't you don't see a holding blind in the field. Um, the judges and, and workers get there two days in advance to 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 think through their marks, and they're putting their marks where a dog does not want to go, um, and they're putting their marks with a lot of uh, a lot of stuff in between the line and the bird. And you got to just have a, a dog that's not afraid to push and not afraid to, you know, to go where it's supposed to go and go straight. Um,
0: How many series are in the grand and what do each consist of? Well, you're going to have five total series. You can have
2: four retriever series, two going to be water series, two will be land. And then on the fifth day, if you're, you're lucky enough to, to make it that far um, you have an upland series. And In the Upland series of the Grand, you're going to have um, three basic com- components. You're going to have a walk-up, uh, you're going to have an honor, and then you're going to have a, a, a test to show uh, the ability for a dog to quarter a field, to work some cover, find a bird, flush the bird, and be steady to the flush. Um, and so it's a pretty tough – you know, there are a lot of dogs that are lost in the fifth series because you crank down on these dogs so much uh, to get them – you know tight enough to to run the retriever series to run good landlines um and to to be you know rock solid steady on the line it, a grand judge doesn't want to see a dog bouncing around at the line. they want to see a dog that's quiet um and sit still um that's not going to spook you know game in a hunt that's not going to disturb the other hunters that's going to be uh, a, a great companion next to you but then on the fifth day we're asking them to you know to get out and and be a little bit free and run around and look for birds and, you know, a live chucker is going to flush out in front of them. And man, that's a a lot of temptation for a dog after he's been tightened down so much and how you're telling it to get out there and and hunt uh, and and find a bird and get a live flush and a kill in front of them. And so it's, uh, it's tough. Um, The standard's high. The standard's much higher in the grand that it is in a a weekend finish test. And, you know, you know that going into it and you're either prepared or you're not
0: you have to have a good dog during the retriever series the land and water what are they seeing what do you like this this upcoming week at the h cooper black in south carolina what are you expecting to see uh, the judges put out there
2: uh, cooper black's a, a beautiful uh a beautiful place uh built for retriever. Uh, where for pointer work great grounds great water um it's going to be a little different than a lot of grains we'll, we'll talk about water first typically the water in the grand is going to be swampy um you know lots of lots of trees logs lily pads grass um last last uh, <laughs> fall we were in louisiana and Southern louisiana, rice fields um and it was uh you know it was like a duck hunt um cooper blacks uh Water's a little different than most groundwater it's it's bigger uh, more open water more technical water um but there's a few little little nooks and cranny on some of the ponds with some timber and some logs and stuff like that but um typically you're going to be you know in some you know fairly thick you know water with with lots of debris and lots of stuff in the way um the grand is for the marking portion of the test whether it's land or water You're not going to see a lot of tight setups. You're going to see three marks spread out. Um, They want to see a dog. They want to know if the dog really marked that bird and went to the area of the fall for that bird. And so they spread the areas of the fall out enough so that there's not, you know, confusion upon what bird they're going for. And so they're going to be spread out. So, you know, think about a a bird at nine o'clock, 12 o'clock at three o'clock. You're going to see a lot of that at the grant spread out, you know, with, with, with no gray area of where the area of the fall is. Um, and they're going to expect the dog to get to that area of the fall um, promptly and stay in the area of the fall and, and, and dig that bird out pretty quick. Um, they're not looking for big extended hunts, um, but they're not looking for you to handle either. They want to see the dog can mark. So that's why they spread them out so that they're not they're not trying to trick a dog. Um, you're not going to see, you know, tight in lines of the ground. You're not going to see tight hip pockets. You're going to see spread out marks um you know go get them the distance max uh at the grand is a little bit bigger than finish tests um but they know where to put the marks those judges are spending you know a couple days looking at the field that they're given and looking at the body of water they're given knowing that they're going to stay there for the entire time um difference between the, the grand and the master national um is the grand judges stay at the same um piece of land or water all week and judge different dogs every day at Master Nationals, you move with your judges to each flight, to each uh, different series, um, and so at the Grand, they're, they 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 want to know that they had a good test. So they're they're thinking through wind, um, they're thinking through where the sun's going to be, and you know conditions change throughout the day. You, know, you can have a dog early on uh, in the morning run in in maybe better conditions than a dog that runs seventy fifth that day, um, or you know vice versa. You know a lot can change at the Grand. A lot of people say grants, you know, 70 or 80% luck um, on, you know, on when your dog runs, you know, how the birds come out. You know, did you have a hen mallet on that long bird? Cause they're going to going back to the setups, they're going to hide those winners so well that when your dog steps to, gets to the bucket, he has no idea where the birds are. Um, in a weekend test, they don't take, you know, they don't take the time to brush in the holding box. They don't take the time to build, you know, brush piles and move logs and move, you know, and cut grass and do the things that they're going to do at the grand. They're going to have workers there on Saturday with chainsaws, weed eaters and and trailers. They're going to be moving cover. and They're going to be creating cover. and They're going to be making scripts, making sure they get bird placement where it's going to be, it's going to take a good dog to get to that bird. You know, that's part of the fun of it is, is, you know, getting a dog to learn, you know, how to, you know, the dog's got to swing with the gun good because they're not going to hear the wingers go off at 160 or so yards with, you know, with some wind blowing. Um, They're not going to look out and know, oh, there's a winger hide there, so no birds gone. um It's it, it's truly hidden marks. There's no sound at the marks, and so it's, you know, you got to have a, a dog that's uh consistent and that's, that's looking straight ahead and that turns well with you. You know, a lot of push-pull drills, a lot of Bucket drills with a gun and getting dogs to, to make big swings on the marks. Um, you know, they like to throw a mark way off to the right and then throw one way to the left and make a swing, you know, 180 degrees the next one, then throw a long punch bird up the middle. Um, you know, there, there's there's things that they, you're going to see at the Grand that are, are fairly consistent. Um, but one thing is bird placement is, is, is critical at the Grand. And, you know, at Cooper Black, it's, it's rolling fields. Um, it's a lot of broom straw. Um, there's small trees in the fields. And so keyhole blinds will be out there. Um, you know, the blinds are tough. The the standard for a blind at the grand is is super high. They want to see a good initial line. They want to see a dog that challenges the line of the blind. Um, they don't want to see a dog that runs parallel to the line uh, of the blind. Even if you're only five yards off, they want to see that dog cross that line and, and make, uh, you know, make progress to the line every single cast. You know, a, a cast that doesn't make progress to the line is, is, is getting you dinged. And as far as the judging goes, you're going to you get two judges at every series with a grand committee member standing behind them, um, you know, writing down his thoughts and making sure that the judges are consistent. But you'll get either a score of a zero, a one, or a two. And if you get a two, you had a good run. It was clean. And and everything's good. If you get a one um, on your scoring, then that's a marginal run. You can only get one, you know, one one uh, throughout the course of the five series. Um, and so it's it's tight. If you handle in the first series, you better be clean for the rest of the grand. If you had a marginal blind in the first series, you better be perfect for the rest of the grand. Um, and so it, it's tough. You get you get one slip
0: up, um, and that's it. How many dogs are entered in this year's grand? Roughly,
2: roughly, I think it's. I I didn't, I didn't even look, but I think it's around 400 dogs.
0: What's their average pass rate?
2: I think it's around 20%. Wow!
0: So to have a dog achieve a grand pass is is a major accomplishment, and you need two grand passes to become a grand hunting retriever champion. Correct.
2: You do, and you need two hundred and fifty points. How so, do you get
0: two hundred fifty points? Well,
2: you get fifteen points for every finish pass that you run. hundred points get you a finish title, and so then you get your thirty or forty points for each grand pass, and then you know you have to have the, you know, that total number of points to, to accomplish that grand title. Uh, and you know you can you can get them, you can get some points through Upland, uh, Upland. Uh, HRC hunt test, you can get ten points for every upland pass, and so you know you you just you keep running your dog and having fun. And there's different uh, point rewards. You get five hundred points on a dog, and and that's a big deal. And and they have a five hundred point club, a thousand point club, a fifteen hundred point club, and you know five hundred points incrementally. They have you know it's it's a it's a it's a cool accomplishment to see a dog that's consistently you know, doing good work. I know Gracie, if she passes the grand, she'll have 500 points uh, this time, uh, as well as Buck, uh, one of my boykins. Um, they're both sitting at around 460, 470 last time I checked. And so, you know, a, a, another pa- a pass of the grand would get them to 500 or, or two more finish passes. And um, they're signed up for finish tests in late April. So I'm expecting both of them to get 500 points this month and, um, you know, make that accomplishment. That's a, that's a good deal. And it shows consistency um, that a dog can continually go out there and do the work and you didn't just rush through it and, and get the right test and, and pass the test, but you know, the dog consistently passes on
0: the test. That's cool. Um, Kevin, I know that you had a bunch of questions that you'd uh, ready for Blaine. So why don't you jump in here and start asking away about it?
1: Yeah. So I kind of want to do like a little shot for shot action that we've done in the past. Uh, so I, have got a whole array of questions. Um, but Blaine, I want to go to you first. You're, you're a little bit smarter than Bob, so we'll start with you.
2: right. Uh, that's understandable.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, um, when you're working with a dog, how do you improve steadiness?
2: Interesting. We had a, I had a conversation with a client today about that. Um, you know, there's a lot of different methods to make a dog. Um, we do it a, a little different than you know than Bob does, um, and it's something new we've done for the last year or so that that's really worked well for us. Um, and we do it at a young age when a dog's you know really picking up real big dog marks. You know, maybe you know probably starting to see pattern work uh, at that stage. We're really starting to hold them accountable to it. Um, and, you know, we like to make the dog make the decision to sit. And so we don't have a lot of, you know, a lot of commands with the dogs. We walk up to line. We expect them to sit down. Um, we keep a a short rope on them, even when they get a little bit older. Um, and we keep it loose. We're not holding the dog tight with the rope, but we do have the rope in our hand. Uh, I'm not, I'm not telling them to sit. I'm not reminding them to sit. I'm not sticking them. Uh, I'm not giving them any collar pressure. I'm just sitting down at the mat uh, with my dog and we're going to call for the bird. We're going to shoot a gun and throw the bird. If the dog breaks, then I'm going to have that rope and it's going to get six or eight feet in front of me. And it's going to correct itself, um, you know, through the use of a a prong collar um, attached to the rope. And, I'm still not going to yell no or sit or hear that I've got the rope and the dog has nowhere to go but back to me. So it gets back to me and it sits down. Uh, We reward that behavior and we throw the bird again. And so the dog gets rewarded for sitting. Um, And the reason a dog breaks is is because they want the bird. And so we don't let them have the bird unless they sit. And they learn really quick that um, if I keep my butt on the ground, I get the bird. And with them making the correction on themselves, I think it takes some of the mental pressure off the dog uh, between the handler and the dog. And so the dog's not looking at me as the one that's putting the pressure on them. I'm not sticking them. I'm not yelling at them. I'm not saying anything to them. And so it's all their own decision. They finally, when they make the decision on their own, that they're going to sit. And then they're rewarded with the bird that we just, we find a happier dog um, and a dog that, that's less skittish at the line. Um, that's less worried at the line and is not thinking about what I'm going to do to them. Um, but he's think he's, he's trying to, he or she's trying to make a good decision and sitting still is the best decision they can make. And, um, we just find that they get, they, they seem to be more focused and, and attentive and, and more happy to do their job.
1: Now, When you can, I jump
0: in real quick, Kev. Before you jump, before you dig deeper into yours, maybe write your question down or something. Well, I was a lot of the questions I get, Blaine, from Instagram and Facebook is people who study their dog at a young age, or I mean, I, I know what I tell them. Would you describe when you know it's time to start studying?
2: If a dog has good enthusiasm to go, even if it's a four-month-old puppy, we're going to start studying them. If a dog's lacking desire, then I'm not going to hold him back. I want them to want to go first, and that goes back to the early stages of, of teaching as a puppy. And so we've built this desire to retrieve early on, and when we see a dog that really loves to do it, then we begin to hold him to a standard earlier on um, and teaching them earlier on that, that, that you know, sitting is going to get what you want. Um, and, and so that, that becomes, you know, it, it's just like the clicker training. You know, I tell it to sit and click the clicker and give it a treat, but it's rewarded for sitting. And so now I'm going to reward the sit with the bird, or I'm going to reward the sit with a, a stroke down his back and a good, good, good dog. And you know, let him go get the bird. And so, you know, it's, i, I think it's—it's it's all going to be, de- you know, dependent on the dog. But you know, if the dog has good drive early on, then you know, we're going to have a steady dog
0: before force start. start.
2: and we're going to have a dog delivering birds to hand before force start.
0: I agree wholeheartedly, but I think the key that I want people to listen to and remember is build retrieve drive.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah, if you got a dog that's, you know, you hear the term piggy, you know, that, that doesn't really love doing it, just kind of walks or ambles out there to the bird and um, or the bumper or whatever you're using as a teaching tool, you know, why do I want to make that dog rock steady when it really doesn't want to go yet? Um, and so, that, I mean, that's a fundamental teaching in, in in lots of aspects of dog training. You know, you can't teach two things at once. You can't teach go and stop at the same time and so we're going to teach go when they're babies we're going to teach sit once they have realized how much they like to go and so yeah 100 percent agree if you don't have a dog with with a ton of desire and drive then you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna worry about sitting and worry about steadiness early on and some people make the mistake of well my dog doesn't really like to retrieve so i'm gonna really work on obedience and i'm gonna really pound in steadiness and, and I think you're you're doing a dog a disservice at that point because you're, you know, you're you're rewarding their, you know, the undesirable behavior they're showing for retrieving by making them sit. And so I want them to, I want them to really, really want to go. Once once I know a dog
0: does love to do it, then they're going to be expected to sit. Very good.
1: Now, All right, Kev. yeah, so I'm... Um... On that note, Bob, don't feel left out, but I'm gonna this shot is going for for Blaine. So I on that, like on the flip side with that one, if you have a dog that is just balls out, full of drive, a lot of giddy up, how do you focus a dog and kind of settle them down like, all right, easy. Now we're ready. You can read their body language and we're ready to go. Like how how do you do that with a dog who is just ready to rip?
2: I slow down, you know, everything's slow. Everything's quiet. I try to remain super, super calm with my dogs. Um, everything's very quiet. You know, you get a jacked up dog with that giddy up that you talk about. The louder the handler gets, the more movement the handler gets, it just exponentially just, you know, jacks that dog up even more. And so a good, quiet, calm, let's walk to the line and we're not just walking to the line. We're walking to the line. My, I got a, an assistant who works for me here that she runs a lot of the young dogs. Every young dog, when it comes to the line, I, you know, I tell her, I said, I want the prong collar on. I want the rope on I want that dog to walk with you. I want that dog's head up. I want that dog looking out. And so you can control that if you have the tools in place, if you just let your dog out the truck, and go up to the bucket and start throwing birds. You've you know you've taught that dog it's okay to be wild, um, and so I've got complete control over every you know aspect of that dog from the time I get him out of the truck till when I get to the mat or the bucket or whatever you're running from. And you know I, if if the dog's not looking out well, then I'm I repeat the command sit. I don't do a lot of here and heel. I'm just saying sit. And I continue to say sit until the dog's looking where I want it to look. And then I stop and the dog knows, okay, I'm looking where I need to look. And with that young dog, that's when we're gonna, you know, we're gonna praise it. We're gonna say, Good. And we're gonna pet it and we're gonna rub on its back and and let it know that's that's what I want. Um and but we're gonna we're gonna help it to see what you know what I want from it and not just expect it to come off lead and walk to the mat and and you know, be laser being focused out at the at the winger height. Um, you know, communication with your bird boys is, is is critical. Or you know, if you're if you're training alone and you're using the wingers, you know, you you've got the the option on those wingers to make sound out there in the field. And you know, I get on the radio, I tell my bird boy, all right, give me a hey hey right now, and and make some sound out there so that dog looks where I want it to look. And I'm not going to signal to throw that burden, so that dog is looking exactly where I want it to look. And so it just takes, you know, it takes time slow down and, you know, less verbal cues and less movement, you know, with a, with a fiery jacked up dog that wants to move around a lot. Well, then I'm going to be still and, and, and be quiet and let the dog calm down. Um, a buddy of mine that trains a, a lot of field trial dogs uses a method of uh with a tennis ball you know he keeps a tennis ball in his truck and i started doing with my young dogs and um you know every time they get off the truck we get we, we suit them up with a collar and their and their pinch collar uh their e-collar and and we get that tennis ball out and we throw that tennis ball a couple times and that dog runs and picks it up and 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 uses the bathroom and it gets kind of loosened up and uh it's a it's a stress reliever and so we're getting out we're having fun and then we go do our work. And as soon as we're done the work, I don't care if it was a good run, a bad run, if the dog, you know, had some struggles and we had to, you know, administer some pressure and corrections, I don't care what happened. When we get done, we're going to get that tennis ball out of my pocket. We're going to throw that ball and we're going to relieve the stress again. And we're going to go back in the truck um, and and just let that dog know, hey, good job. We're
0: going to get after it again next time. Uh, no big deal. What do you think, Blaine? the difference between that and just a standard issue fun bumper would be like, do you think there's a concept behind the difference between a fun bumper or throwing the duck again for a fun bumper versus that tennis ball?
2: I think fundamentally it's probably the same, uh, the same thing. Uh, I've got a young lab that, that we own that we kept out of Gracie, uh, her last greeting that to uh, Hess. And I'll tell you what, that little joker expects that ball. When he jumps out of the truck, he knows exactly where the ball is in the trailer. If it's not in my pocket, he'll sniff my pocket on my, my handler jacket. If it's not there, he runs to the, to the hole on the truck where I keep that tennis ball and he expects it. And, you know, I think it's probably good to, you know, to associate that moment with something other than your training tips. Um, and so we pull it out, and that ball is nothing. But there's nothing involved in that ball for training. I don't care if they drop it. I don't care if they're jumping around, if they're chewing on it, if they're playing tug of war with me. So I, I, you know, I don't. I probably don't want them to do that with a bumper. And so I think the having a different item is a is a good idea. But fundamentally, I think it's the same principle. But I think we want to, you know, I want to remove, you know, any training when I pull that ball out, it's nothing to do with training. It's not about sitting still and being steady. I get the ball out and throw it and they're running wild and having fun and being a dog.
1: I love that. I think it's great. It's almost like you're giving the dog a compliment sandwich. It's like, all right, we're going to have a great day. It's going to be a good one. Yeah. All right. We're working. Uh-huh. Maybe we got some X, Y, and Z. We got to, we got to get after next time, but tomorrow's <laughs> another day. We got it. It's like, you're, you're talking to a person.
2: Here you go. You know, here's your rule. Here's, here's, your ball. Don't worry about the bad day at the office today. Uh, it's a new day and I mean, dogs are compartmentalizing creatures and so they're not they're not carrying things over um, if you can separate that moment from the next moment. And so I don't want a dog holding a grudge with me because everything we do is you know, we're asking a lot of these dogs. Um, We're asking for really good work and tough work at times. And, you know, when I get through and we, you know, we had a struggle and, you know, if we're training, it ought to be hard. You know, we're trying to teach something. If, If you win every training day, then the training wasn't good enough. And so I'm expecting the dogs to struggle with things. And so I don't want the dog's existence with me in training to always be hard. And so we get out, we finish that, and we reward the dog with, "Here you go, buddy, go play, be a dog." Uh, and we got to remember, these are dogs. Um, they're not. They don't care if they did well or not. They don't know if they did well. They don't care if we get a ribbon on Saturday. They don't know about that ribbon. They don't know what it cost us. They don't. They don't care. And so we care way more than they do uh, about this game. So to, you know. As weird as it sounds, I want to think about it like a dog thinks about it, uh, and and respond in a way that you know what it's, it's all right, buddy. You know we'll get them, you know get them next time, and I'm not mad at you. And there's nothing we can do to change what just happened 30 seconds ago. Um, and and we're gonna move on and and do it again.
1: I like that. That's a good, I don't know. That's a good outlook to have. That's pretty cool. It's pretty positive. Um, all right, Blaine, you're off the hot seat, brother. Uh, Bob what are a few commands that are kind of go-to's for you while we're out hunting? So not in like a training scenario, but all right, it's hunting season. And like, what are some things that you should definitely have your dog, uh, you know, boned up on so that, you know, you can use them frequently when out in the field.
0: Cool, Uh, That's a good question. I think if you break that down and you said what we, like not training versus hunting, I think that's why we train is for, hunting being blaine and i run hunt tests and those are fake hunts though we're doing them to test the dog skills to what we would expect them to do during a hunt so in my opinion the question that was asked is there is no difference i'm going to teach the dog to mark i'm going to tell them good when they're looking out um so, the commands I use are here, heel, sit, down, place, or kennel. Um, I, when I'm running blind, it's, I'm cueing the dog up with dead bird. When they're looking where I want them to look, good. them good. You're looking where I want you to go, and back. And then, bores and backs and whistle sits. Um, and a lot of times, I'll tell the dog to mark. So, if I know... A ducks falling or wh- whatever the case may be you know i might just yell out to my dog hey mark and it's going to take them looking from somewhere up into the sky and boom they see it fall you know that that honestly is not as common as i used to maybe think it was for me to say it but you know i i think if i notice if i'm looking down and you for instance are shooting over here and i'm not and my dog's paying attention to me but he's not paying attention to the guy, three guys down in the pit blind or something, I might say, hey, Mark, 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 the dog will spin out and look out and see the bird fall that you shoot. But if we were talking about you shooting, it'd probably be you shooting and missing. So. Damn, dog,
1: see, I was just dog... waiting for you to finish so that I could say it's because you're usually missing.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Damn. I'm going to have to go shoot skeet one day. yeah. <laughs> Uh, be proud me, But I guess, does that make sense to have like, yeah, no, I got you. Training, that's why we're training. Yeah. So the commands that we use are the same commands that we're going to use for hunting. So there's no real difference. The only thing I would say that I want people to remember is obedience and, and life experience, teaching the dogs experiences, getting in and out of boats and riding nicely in a boat, getting in and out of a Mo Martian lab. um, confidently comfortably and reliably you know those are things that we're building experiences and teaching the dog how to do it so that in the hunting scenario versus training scenario it's like do not pass go i know what to do just tell me boss and and we're doing it so strong obedience you got an under control hunting dog is key and so your obedience here he'll sit down Um, are are pretty paramount. Do you agree, Blaine? Yeah, I don't have
2: much difference between what I want a hunt test dog to do than a hunting dog. Um, You know, whether you say mark or watch or whatever cue you're going to use if, you know, birds are are coming in or being shot by a partner or or whatnot. You know, once a dog's hunted a little bit, we watch them. We see our dog. How many times have our dogs seen the birds before we have? And you, I mean, I watch my dog's eyes all the time. Um, he's looking one way, and I'm looking the other. And I can, you know, you see those visible signs, those cues the dogs give you. You know, when they hear a duck or see a duck or you know know a duck's coming, and and you know, it's just I think a lot of it's experience. You know, you can train a dog to a seasoned or senior level in the hunt test world, and you know, I, I took a couple client dogs hunting this year. I took uh, opening day of dove season. We had we had a lot of dove shooting going on here. And so I was rotating dogs in and out that have never hunted before, that a lot of clients that just, you know, do it for the, the sport of the hunt test and don't hunt. And I took a couple of HRCH dogs that had never been on a hunt in their life. And you know what? They struggled at first. You know, they didn't realize that they were just watching the sky. And there wasn't anybody out there to throw a bird. And there wasn't a winger. Um, And so it 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 took them a a little while. It took them a few birds to to realize that you know they're coming from from the sky and just out of nowhere, here comes a dove. And you know I hear a shot. The next you know the next dove stool down the the field, the next hay bale, and I you know the dog started to you know within ten or fifteen shots, learning to to look out that direction. And then you know I think they start to you know to to pair that up with, you know, a a master or AKC style test where they get a shot in the field and, you know, they know to look out in that direction. And that same thing with a dove hunt, you know, if you want to be specific about the type of hunting and, you know, you you just need a dog that's, that's aware of what's going on and awareness is built by, you know, experience. Um, You can't teach, you know, a dove flying down a power line in training. Um, It's, it's a tough scenario to do. Um, But, you know, get them out there and and let them see it, do it. Uh, I took HRCH Heidi, one of my really nice Boykin females on dove hunt this year. She had no clue what was going on. Um, She sat just as still as can be next to me, waiting on, you know, a a bird boy out in the field to throw a bird and, and things to happen. And, you know, there were doves being shot all around. She didn't know what was going on. But, you know, after about 30 minutes of it, she, you know, figured it out and realized, okay, I'm looking up. I'm looking out, I'm watching, I'm listening. So I think a lot of it's just experience in in the hunting situation and all the, all the commands and terms we use uh, day to day in training. And I know you said, you know, besides those things, what do we do? I think that's why we train them so that they can do it. So they can hunt, so they can do what they were bred to do and watch birds and, and go get them for us.
1: Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. Um, all right, so so this next one is for both of you. Speaking of shot for shot, uh, what is your shell of choice? And then also your shot of booze of choice.
2: My shell of choice is whatever Rogers has the cheapest per case. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get number twos no matter what I'm shooting and whatever rogers sporting goods and a little plug for rogers has the cheapest shells per case i buy two cases a year get them shipped free shipping to my door and one year it might be the federal some year you know one year it might be the kent's one year it might be uh whatever whatever is cheapest i found out if you shoot a duck when it's within range it really doesn't matter what you shoot that's, um, that's they'll a good die. answer and so uh,
0: that's what that's what i use you two inch or excuse me three inch twos i you i do i use three inch number twos i shoot it i
2: this past couple years i've shot nothing but 20 gauge and i enjoy hunting with my old charles daily 20 gauge and um using it for turkey season this year um but yeah i shoot uh
0: three inch number twos for
2: just about everything
0: i shoot three inch threes heavy metal that's a new yorker that makes way more money than
1: <laughs> uh, well, you're both forgetting my second part of the question. That's okay.
0: Uh, uh no, we're gonna answer uh, that too. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Um, no, I yeah, they are a little more expensive, but I I shot uh black cloud. I was gifted three and three black cloud, and I couldn't hit the broadside of the barn. I was on a bang up. Flooded cornfield shoot. I mean, ducks were everywhere, and I shot like 25 rounds of the black cloud and knocked two birds down. I went to my heavy metal and I knocked my my limit out in like six shots. So I just think my gun patterns it well. And then I also think maybe even subconsciously, I'm confident with it. And so I just bang them. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I like the three inch threes from heavy metal. Is, uh, and I shoot that Browning Satori, Satori. Big money. Big money. I bought it all. <laughs> bought it all. Well,
2: <laughs> more importantly, let's talk about the brown. Uh, brown yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, you said before yeah, we started, brown brown started hitting track. record. Right now
2: we're sipping on a little Blanton's that was gifted me for my birthday last two weeks ago. Uh, I like a good Blanton's. Um, and I'll tell you what, I, my choice is a good old-fashioned bird dog. Um, just the straight My man. old, old bird dog, not the not the flavored, just the old bird dog that they first came out.
0: It's real good.
2: Twenty five dollar uh, a bottle whiskey you can get.
1: Yeah, no, I I'd agree with that. That's real good.
0: Uh, right now I'm drinking a Bud Light, but if we're talking about a real shot or or drinking, you know, something on the rocks. I'm a big fan of crown on the rocks or a maker's mark on the rocks. And actually, Kevin and I took a road trip. To, we rented with Dakota in Arkansas. Yeah. We drove through the bourbon, the bourbon trail. Yeah, the bourbon, bourbon trail. trail, baby. And we did. A, I don't mean to throw the name and not explain. Kevin and I have a, a mutual friend, that now lives in Alabama. His name's Dakota, and Dakota invited Kevin and I to Arkansas probably four or five years ago. And on our way home we hit up the Bourbon Trail. And ever since then I've I've really enjoyed Maker's Mark. I thought their their tour was cool, the the story behind it was cool and so I enjoy that. I wish yeah. they wouldn't put the big thick wax around the cats.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's kind of annoying, although it is cool to watch them do it.
0: <laughs> uh it's like some schmegma. <laughs>
1: Um, I, uh, I do, I do enjoy me a little maker's mark as well. Um, we ought to get Dakota on the podcast, by the way, he'd be, he'd be a good one to to shoot the breeze with, but, um, oh, we also drove about two and a half hours out of the way to hit a Chick-fil-A on that 20 hour car ride.
0: Uh, that's an exaggeration, but I did want to introduce Kevin to Chick-fil-A and it was worth it.
1: We drove a very far way and got slightly lost and it turned into a long ride. But anyways, uh, that's cool. Very nice. Um,
0: all right, buddy. Hey, listen, one more question and we're going to wrap this sucker up.
1: False. We got a couple good ones that I'm going to throw down here. They'll be quick. Break them down, Kevin. We got all night. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Bob's trying to end the fun early. Listen, um, what is one thing that, uh, Blaine, what's one thing that you keep in your truck that is always handy to have when you're out training?
2: That's a very good question, Kevin. Yeah. Damn take right it, it is. <sighs>
1: Thanks, Bob's trying to end the fun early. Yeah.
2: Got a pee. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> go ahead, Bob. We'll take care of this. Yeah, listen, we're having a good time. What's the one? Th- I mean, I'm not.
1: Maybe not one here, thing, so but like, I is there something that you question. keep in your truck and you're like, "Good thing I got this bad boy."
2: I mean, I'm not doing anything without my e-collar ever. Um, gotta have my e collar.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good one.
2: Gotta have my tennis ball. Gotta have, you know, the, yeah, it, it's our job every day, and so we're trying to equip ourselves with every single thing we need, and and everything's there for a reason. Um, but you know, I'm not, I'm not leaving home without my e collar and my listing. Um
1: No, that's a good one. You know what I keep in my car? Bob actually introduced me to this one. I have um this hemp. Like body lotion type stuff. Right. Sounds a little out there, but it actually does a really good job of keeping mosquitoes away. It smells a little funky, it smell like a dirty okay. hippie. But that's a good one to keep uh, instead of killing yourself with bug spray. Love that. Keep, keep that good one. To keep Ooh, I don't go anywhere without it.
0: Have, I have two rolls of toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs>
1: is that is that your your special something that you keep in your truck though, Bob? That's your answer.
0: You know what? Blaine and I were talking about this, too. We both have, like, brand new nice trucks, the nicest trucks we've ever owned, and they are the most trashed inside right now than ever before. Your dog
1: trainers. Because,
0: well, it's like, man, it's it's 25 degrees out in the morning, and then it was 80 degrees out this afternoon, and so I've got shorts, crocs, hiking boots, winter jackets, gloves, and then, you know, so... I, I've got a million things in my truck just to be ready for anything. So it's kind of hard to whittle it down. But as far as doing our job, I think playing nail, on the down, head, e-collar, whistle. And, uh, and that's that's about it. And toilet paper.
2: Yeah, And that's the thing. This time of year, we're on the road every weekend. Yeah. Working Monday through Friday. Um, trying to get the dogs ready for the weekend. And get home Sunday night at, at 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock and who's who's going to stop and clean the truck?
1: No one. That's who.
2: You don't have time. You got to you got to get back to the grind Monday morning and work on what you know what struggles you saw this weekend.
1: Yeah. Um all right. This one is also for both of you. Uh hit hit a ranking on this one. Dove hunt, duck hunt, goose hunt in the field. Top 3.
2: A good green timber mallard hunt, number one. I like a goose hunt in the field. That could be number two. And man, that's such a tight race, though, between one and three. Uh, But that'd be my order, would be the duck. Right right on.
1: Bob, what about you?
0: I think, man, I think. a swamp duck hunt. And I'm thinking of reeds, Kev. When oh yeah, that. love reeds, it. Reeds for us is the dogs in a MoMar stand. We are waist deep in water in those reeds. The dog's on the stand, we're in the reeds. The decoys are right in front of us and the ducks work in our face and are, are so close you can bat them out of the sky. Um, That's my number one. My number two is dove hunting because it's like a delicacy to me because we can't shoot doves in New York. I can only do it in the south. And uh and so I kinda like cherish it when I get to do it and I really enjoy it and it's a huge challenge too. They're so small, they dip that up and dive, like old dog quote. Um <laughs> and then field goose hunting I really enjoy because if you do it right, the geese have no idea you're there. They're landing in the decoys. They're, the flock, you know, the flock's coming right over top of you. But I also know, it's, to me, it's a little stressful with the dog because, you know, the dogs are right on that gun barrel level, and yeah, I feel like I've got way more control of all the other situations and that layout blind dogs right next to you and if that dog were to break and so it's always in the back of my head on a goose hunt that if that dog were to break i'm i need to be in control so i'm not as worried about shooting so that's just me
1: uh blaine what kind of taxidermy do you have anything
0: yeah yeah
2: i got right now we're looking at three nice bucks we killed here in in north georgia and a nice buck in north georgia is a you know 115 to 125 inch buck. um you know we, they don't get we don't get great big deer in north georgia in the, in the hills but um looking at a pair of pintails i killed um where I, I killed those two pintails in mississippi uh canvas back over here to my left that, that were killed in missouri um i got some ducks down in my office down at the kennel um got a few fish down there and, um just, I love to fish and hunt. Um, don't really care the game. Um, just love it all. Love to love to make stuff die. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: what, what sort of hunting do you look forward to throughout the year? Uh, that is non dog related. Turkey hunting by far my, my
2: passion. Really? Um, yeah, the most fun.
0: When's your turkey uh, season? Fr-
2: it started March 27th. Have you been out? Um, I've been out a few times. The problem with Turkey season is it's a busy time of the year for a dog trainer. Yeah. Um, and so unless you're privileged uh, as we are to have land here where we live to, to hunt and, you know, catch a little, you know, quick hunt before work, um, it's tough, but love the Turkey and love the interaction uh, between the bird um, and the calling and the, uh, the woodsmanship it takes to to consistently kill turkeys and yeah, um, just it's a fun game. Um, just I like to do it by myself. I like to do it with a with a buddy, but you know it's just you know outsmarting a bird that has the brain the size of a pea <laughs> somehow has you know the instinct that that just keeps it alive and uh, it's it's fun.
1: That's awesome. Um, so I I got one more question. I know it's well it's getting late. Now I don't know when people are going to be listening, but, um, so everybody kind of thinks back and has fond memories of their dogs and, um, maybe it's their own dog or, and I know you guys train tons of different dogs, but is there one dog that you can think back to that made a huge impact on your life or, um... I don't know, that you just have, like, a really fond memory of? And then, like, I guess maybe what is that memory? And then is there a dog that you have in your kennel right now that you just love training?
0: He's flicking his glasses at me. Go for it. You go first. All right. Um, I think the dog that started it all for me was our chocolate lab that Kevin and I grew up with. I remember growing up, Being a tiny, tiny, tiny kid, like five, six, seven years old, asking mom and dad for a dog. Can we have a dog? I want a dog. I I wanted German Shepherds. I wanted to be a police officer and, and train dogs. I wanted a hunting dog. I wanted every kind of dog that could do something. And when we were, when I was eight, mom and dad surprised us on Easter. So we're coming up on old Nelson's anniversary. His his name was Nelson, <laughs> and he was he was a giant eight month old chocolate lab that was just a house dog, and he was pretty unruly. Uh, you know, Dad didn't know what he was doing. We didn't really know what we were doing growing up. And, oh, he ruled uh,
1: the roost for sure,
0: for sure. And he and but what he taught me, and I don't know when I realized it, but there was something that switched my brain is watching other people's dogs who could walk off leash and would come when they were called and, and like, played with the owners and, and you didn't have to worry about them. And we always had to, you know, Nelson was off leash, but, you know, until he decided he wanted to take a rouse to, you know, run around the neighborhood and, and we'd have to drive around the old Crown Victoria and find him. Um, and that was the time where I realized I wanted to see how far I could take a dog. And that next dog was Buck, my yellow lab that everybody probably has seen or heard about. And and Buck took me all over the country as far west as I think Missouri, Mississippi, Missouri area and started Lone Duck. And I would never know Blaine if I didn't have Buck. And I never would know Dakota and hunted Arkansas with you, Kevin, if I didn't have Buck and started Lone Duck and so I think Buck is and Nelson are, are really special. And then in the kennel right now, besides maybe Memphis. Yeah, besides your own
1: have, dogs, I guess.
0: Yeah, she got a thousand. I think may. Yeah, I think May right now. Uh and Blaine, I think that might be why he was waving his glasses at me. He and I've been talking about May. May's maybe thirteen months old and just it's it. She tries hard every day. She exceeds expectations I push her further and faster and harder and I question myself sometimes should I push her this far but then I I have the guts to, to do it because I believe in her so much and it makes it really fun to pull her out of the truck and run her and see what she can do and, and at such a young age she's accomplishing things that Memphis is accomplishing at four years old with a master title and it may not be as crisp and perfect and whatever. But you can see her little gears turning and learning every day. Um, so I think May will be the will be the one that I'm most excited about right now. What about you, Blaine?
2: I've got a. I mean, there's a lot of great dogs um, that I've got. You know what I like? I like a dog that, like you described in the May, that comes out of the truck or the trailer and wants to work every day. It, they don't have to be perfect every day but they want to try and they want to try to do good every single day. Um, and, you know, you talk about Buck, I'll talk about my Buck. Um, I cut on a dog named Buck who just comes out of the truck almost every day of his life wanting to work um, and wanting to do well. And he does good work and he enjoys it. You know, it's it's a pleasure to get dogs out that want to do you know what your what your goals are, and and to know that you're accomplishing things that you know that somebody is is wanting out of their dog, and, and to be able to achieve. You know, I, if if someone says I, I just want a really really good hunting dog, then I want to be able to hand them a really good hunting dog uh, at the end of their tenure here. If they say they want a hunt and retriever champion, then we're going to do whatever we have to do. We're going to bust our tail every day, you know, to get a hunt and retriever champion out of that little dog. You know that dog that 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 you open the door to the trail and they're busting to get out. They're not hid, you know, back in the corner of the, the, the box. And you got to drag them out. Uh, you know, that, that dog that, that wants to work and that, you know, that's buck. That's, you know, I got a dog named Penny who who's not here right now. That's going to be back after the grand, that young 13, 14 month old boy can, that, that loves the work uh, to get out there and just smacks it every single day and, and, and works hard and, and has a strong desire. And so, you know, gosh, I, I'm not going to name one particular dog. I'll, I'll name all the dogs that love doing what they do. and makes our days more enjoyable. Looking back on the day, you know, he, he didn't do perfect, but he gave it us all, all day long. Uh, it, it's just cool to watch that. And it's fun. It makes the job fun.
1: Well, that's a good answer. Um, Blaine, do you take any dogs that aren't Boykins?
2: I do. I do. We We've got gosh, we've got 10 or 12 labs, um, in training right now. Um, just sent a golden home, a good little dog. Uh, we're not, uh, we're not boykin only. Um, I guess we're boykin majority and that's what put us on the map and in, in what we do and where we kind of grew our business from, but uh, we, we train labs and we train a lab like we train our boykins or train our boykins like we train our labs, um, you know, either way you want to put it. Um, now we, we, we do do both.
1: That's awesome. That's, that's really cool. Um, I guess we can wrap up now though. Um, but Blaine, I guess, give a, give us a final thought, man. Like how can people, if they're interested and want to get in touch with you or are interested in learning more about boykins, like how can they find you? Uh, give us the rundown, man.
2: Yeah. You can find me, uh, on my personal Facebook page, Blaine Tarnecki. Um, my dad's also Blaine Tarnecki. Um, so look for the, the younger uh, <laughs> one with, a, with probably a dog in a picture somewhere. Um, uh, we have a Hudson river retrievers uh, page as well. Uh, we're on, uh, Instagram at Boykin guy. Um, you can find us there. Uh, a great research for anybody looking for a Boykin um, or just interested in the breed is the boykinspanielsociety.org. Um, they have a, a ton of information on the breed, uh, on the, the, the health issues that come along with the breed. Uh, just recently in the last year, myself and five other uh, Boykin people, uh, we we started a board to bring about a, a preferred breeders program for the Boykin Spaniel Society. So now you can go onto the website and click on the preferred breeders page or tab on the website, and you'll get a list of preferred breeders that are doing all of the recommended health tests, uh, the DNA tests, the hips, the eyes, and the elbows, the knees, uh, everything that you know, a boykin is susceptible to, to, you know, to having. Uh, and so you can see a list of breeders where you're gonna buy a dog that's healthy. Um, and that's number one. you know you you could buy a seven hundred dollars boykin somewhere that that has no health testing done on the parents and spend thousands upon thousands uh, because of health problems later on. And I just encourage people, you know, even if they're just wanting a, a good pet, a buddy, and a riding dog, you know, buy one you know from a preferred breeder, someone that's doing the health testing. Um, that's doing you know doing good for the breed um, do your research look on the OFA you know all of these things are, are in the public for us to see if a breeder tells you well you know we, we've done all the tests you know but you know the vet says okay well there's proof of that you know and, and don't just take everybody's word um, you know as they say look it up look on OFA see if that dog has been tested Um, and, and look for, you know, ask for this, that paperwork and, um, but the the Boykin Spaniel Society website, a great tool, um, we've got a, it's, it's our parent registry for the breed, um, and they do a good job of promoting the breed and informing and educating people. And, um, you know, if that tool's there, people need to use it, you know, don't just buy a boy because it's cute. Um, look at, you know, look at what, uh, the parents did and look at the health, health clearances on on all of them. So, uh, I I would say do that, but you can check me out uh, Hudson retriever, Hudson river uh, retrievers.com. We got a website with all our information on our training programs. And we have a campus or a kennel in Lexington, South Carolina as well, um, where we do a lot of our puppy work and force fetch work there, uh, with Brent Poston, who does a, I mean, he does a better job with puppies and force fetch than I do. Um, and he gets them ready for what I want them to do and, uh, We just try to facilitate for everybody's needs.
0: That's awesome, Blaine. Yeah, I would suggest anybody who's interested in this breed and maybe wants to bring it into their family and in their 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 dog blind or dog field, you know, Blaine's the number one guy in the country, hands down, with Boykins. If you need, if you have a Boykin and would like information on breeding, Blaine's the guy. If you're looking for a puppy, Blaine's the guy. If you're looking for your boy to get training, Blaine's the guy. And um, I respect him beyond belief. And that's why I come back to Georgia every year. And I'm lucky this year to have been down here twice to watch him, watch his program develop. I mean, he was talking earlier about steadiness and some of the things he does and And how I might do it differently. And and I can promise you that I learned something like I always do every time I come here that I'm going to implement with my dogs. And he's just a phenomenal teacher and trainer. And I think teacher is a really maybe a better word for it. Um, And so I, I respect him to the nth degree. And I hope you all enjoyed this podcast, enjoyed learning from him. Can check him out on Instagram and Facebook, Hudson River Retrievers and Matt Blaken Guy. Uh, we'll probably link it up on all our good stuff that we do. Um, Kevin, I thought you had some phenomenal questions tonight. Thank you so much. And uh, guys and girls, if you enjoyed this podcast, please do us a favor, subscribe, and uh, we will catch you on the flip side. Thanks, Blaine hey join our community if you enjoy the show if you enjoy our youtube if you enjoy instagram it's like buying me and kevin a beer join patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters the link is in the description click that link join the community we've got tons of great videos tons of great content and you can ask me more questions so join it enjoy it we did it for you and you're helping us The show. So thank you so much to that community. Get in, get out, let's roll. Patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters. Thank you.